Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 396, King William I of England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Brian, Allison, and Dudley for signing up already. Before we get going, I'd like to address something. Recently, I spoke of the ravaging of William's army extending as far as Herefordshire, and I mentioned that information had come from an account by Florence of Worcester. And the quote I relied upon was a translation done by Thomas Forrester, who translated Florence's Latin into English back in the 19th century. And it reads, quote, Meanwhile, Earl William was laying waste Sussex, Kent, Hampshire, Surrey, Middlesex, and Herefordshire and cease not from burning vills and slaughtering the inhabitants, end quote. But the bit about Hereford didn't sit well with me, and I kept thinking about it. And since I can't read Latin, I started looking for other translations, including translations by the English Historical Society. And I found that some other scholars had translated that passage as, quote, Meanwhile, Earl William was laying waste Sussex, Kent, Hampshire, Surrey, Middlesex, and Hertfordshire, and cease not from burning vills and slaughtering the inhabitants, end quote. Hertfordshire, which is a county to the north of London, not Herefordshire, which lies near the border of Wales. And that translation makes a lot more sense to me. It's not physically impossible that William's men had ravaged all the way up to the border of Wales, but Hertfordshire just seems much more plausible when you consider his overall strategy at the time. So there you have it. Forrester says it was Herefordshire, but I'm inclined to think that was essentially a typo in his translation, and Florence of Worcester actually had meant Hertfordshire. The devil is always in the details. All right, and with that handled, let's get to the show. Duke William was experienced at wielding terror. Whether he was at home or on campaign, William often employed terror tactics. The people of France were well aware of this, and now the English were learning his skill firsthand. Even Poitiers is forced to admit in his accounts that the Duke was an accomplished terrorist, though you can also see him trying to shift the blame, saying that ultimately it was the fault of Romney for resisting him, or when Dover got burned down, that was the fault of the poor. But as the bastard closed in on London, apparently even Poitiers was struggling to find a way to spin it. Because at this point, Poitiers' account gets very quiet. And all you find on the matter is a simple statement that William was able to march wherever he wished. Unfortunately for William and Poitiers, though, other records preserve the truth. And ironically, the Norman census, the Doomsday Book, preserves the lasting legacy of William's actions. As the bastard marched on London, he and his army slowly cut a wide circle around the city. And he was doing what he had done so many times before. Because he feared a direct confrontation with London, he was turning his ire on those that he didn't fear. The defenseless peasants. William was taking the English people hostage. 
he would commit mass murder until his demands were met. And the devastation here wasn't just sentimental. William's campaign of terror was striking the English elite both financially and militarily. Those peasants weren't just human beings with families, lives, and dreams of their own. They were also the people who created England's wealth, which meant they were the source of the elite's income. Furthermore, the Ferd formed the bulk of the army, and the Ferd came from these same peasants. And making matters worse, by cutting that circle, William was also ensuring that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for reinforcements to link up with the soldiers who were stationed in London. What's worse, William's invasion appears to have had a Hydra quality to it. Because when you read the records of the ravaging and the military strikes, it becomes quite clear that there wasn't just one army. Now granted, Poitiers says that William advanced upon London with, quote, all his army that was left to him, end quote. Which, first of all, is a clear admission that the Norman army had taken devastating casualties at Hastings, and then further casualties from dysentery at Dover and Canterbury. And that in itself is further confirmation that William had left knights behind at Hastings and elsewhere. But we also know that he split his forces up. For example, he sent a detachment to Southwark. And other records speak of how the Normans were ravaging pretty much all over the place. And we also know that some of his knights had come from across the channel to occupy Winchester. And Poitiers also speaks about William gaining reinforcements at this point for his invasion. So we can be relatively certain that William had a lot of troops at his command and he had split up his forces into at least two detachments. And it seems like there were quite a few more. Some just being left behind because they were shitting their brains out and others doing ravaging all over the place. And by splitting his forces up and by bringing reinforcements from across the channel, William and his Normans were able to be in many places at the same time. Winchester, Dover, Canterbury, Hastings, pretty much all over the South. And when you look at where these forces were and what communities they were massacring, it's also clear that they really were doing an effective job cutting London off from any support. And then when you look at what the main bulk of his army was doing and what communities they were massacring, it is clear that they were cutting off London from any support. They were plowing a field of death around the city. And William of Jumiege speaks about how London was in mourning over the sheer number of people that the Normans had killed. William's strategy was ruthless, it was inhumane, and it was working. By all accounts, the English leadership remained safely ensconced within the walls of London and only came out once they decided that surrender was their best course. No organized resistance was offered. I mean, sure, there was that one bit of business at London Bridge, but the way it was discussed in the record makes it sound much more like a popular uprising against the Norman atrocities rather than a large-scale military operation carried out as part of a strategy set forth by English leadership. And things got so bad at this point that the scribes of the Chronicle began castigating the English elite for waiting so long to surrender, saying that they should have done so much earlier. And the Worcester Chronicle adds that, quote, they submitted out of necessity after most damage had been done, end quote. And I can kind of see why the scribes were so angry. 
if the nobles were going to surrender without putting up a fight, they could have done that ages ago, and as such, saved the lives of all those people in the countryside. Or at least, you know, you would think that would be the case. But then again, the soldiers in the aftermath of Hastings had surrendered. Dover had surrendered. I'm certain many of the towns and villages that they torched had almost certainly surrendered. Most of the peasants his knights were butchering, no doubt were pleading for their lives and offering their surrender. So I think the scribes, as they were leveling their criticism, might have missed a key detail. William didn't seem to care all that much about whether or not someone surrendered. You know, with the single notable exception of Queen Edith. But Queen Edith was one person. And for the rest of England, for the common folk and even the lesser nobility, William and his knights don't appear to have been too fussed over whether or not someone was surrendering. They were going to do what they were going to do regardless. And the records make it clear that when the English leadership surrendered and Edwin and Morcar retreated back north, that didn't influence William all that much, other than, you know, making it easier for him to continue his massacre. Because that's what he did. Florence of Worcester writes, quote, Although he concluded a treaty with him, he still allowed his troops to burn and pillage the villes, end quote. And as those communities were burning, the wealth class of England began to rush to strike personal deals with the Duke. Meaning that the people who were in the best position to organize a resistance, those with positions of power and influence, were instead seeking pardons for themselves. They were making excessive displays of submission. And critically, they were providing support for the Norman invaders, even as he continued the slaughter. It appears that the upper classes of England were rushing to aid the Duke in his war so that they could rebrand themselves as collaborators, all in the hopes that they might profit from this, or, you know, at least avoid taking any losses. And as for the people who lived in the villes that were being burned and pillaged, well, I'm not sure how much they figured into that equation. The records indicate that the main concern for the elite was land and titles. And the English clergy, in particular, were focused on these temporal concerns. And they sought to ally themselves with whoever appeared best situated to guarantee their holdings and positions. Now, sometimes this was the result of fear and pressure. For example, Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury only surrendered after his see at Canterbury was occupied by the Normans, which suggests that one of the motivating factors for his surrender was the fact that he'd already lost control of his properties and incomes from that see, and he thought he might lose them forever. But many others appear to have been simply seeking to take advantage. In fact, the records make it clear that it was the clergy who were William's most enthusiastic and supportive collaborators. And some of them enhanced their holdings significantly and became quite wealthy as a result. In fact, some of William's earliest writs in England were focused on granting or confirming lands to the English clergy. Well, those English clergy who had switched sides and joined the Norman cause. And to my knowledge, there was only one English bishop who would go on to later openly rebel against William. Just one. Instead, the English bishops, many of whom were foreign-born or foreign-educated, were staunch supporters of William. 
and I've seen it argued that perhaps they were hoping to use this continental conquest as an opportunity to transform the English church into something closer resembling their continental counterparts. But whatever their motivations were, it's notable that all but one of the English bishops stuck by William even as the greed of Normandy began to turn its gaze upon their churches. But the clergy weren't the only turncoats as the Norman occupation dragged on. There were plenty of nobles who sought to profit from collaboration as well. And the fact is that the records largely agree that as the peasants were being killed in the fields, many figures in leadership positions were essentially treating this as a real estate transaction. In particular, Aidnoth, Thorkel, and Kopsiga, who was the same Kopsiga who had earlier served Tostig, were making deals and acquired sizable amounts of land in exchange for switching sides and serving their Norman masters. And so what began with a trickle soon turned into a flood of elites, all presenting themselves to the Normans, thinking they could turn this whole thing to their advantage by switching sides. And as they did it, that inevitably convinced still more nobles to do the same. And pretty soon, many of the leading men of London were submitting to the Duke of Normandy, shortly followed by many of the leading men of England generally. Now, it didn't happen instantaneously, and each submission happened for its own reasons and on its own timetable. But in general, during this period of conquest and later occupation, faithlessness was becoming a business opportunity. Collaboration was officially a la mode. And remember... Any land, treasure, or titles that the noble and clergy were seeking in exchange for their collaboration was going to be taken from their fellow Englishmen. When the clergy were giving lands, and when Aidnoth, Thorkell, and Kopsiga were paid for their collaboration, they were paid with wealth that was stolen from the Englishmen who were less quick to consort with this violent occupying force. And so, rather than working together against the Normans and trying to secure everyone's future, the English elite were, in a very real sense, preying upon each other. It was a short-term strategy that, ironically, didn't even have short-term benefits for the vast majority of the nobles who submitted to William. The reason why we know the names of the nobles who benefited from collaboration is because there were so few of them. And I suspect the reason for this rush to submit and collaborate was due to a tragic misunderstanding on the part of the English ruling class. They likely thought of William as essentially the next Canute, an outsider who, once he became king, would integrate with English society. And if these nobles played their cards right, they might be able to ride his coattails the way that Godwin had done with King Canute all those years earlier. But William wasn't Canute. The way William viewed his position in England and his relationship to the English was very different from Canute. Canute had adopted many English political structures and cultural expectations. Whereas William, well, William was Norman. And as the English came to William and laid down their arms and made their oaths, they were doing so as descendants of the old Anglo-Saxon culture. For them, this was a reciprocal gift-giving ritual that would then build a relationship between lord and subject. That's what the submission was. They were dropping down to one knee, 
bowing their head to their Lord and swearing an oath that would bind them together. Roughly translated, it was likely along the lines of, I will shun all my Lord shuns and love all that he loves on the condition that he keeps me as I am willing to deserve and all that would fulfill our agreement when I submitted and chose his will. That oath of submission was very English. It was an oath of mutual bond and obligation. It was the result of a negotiated relationship. And Florence of Worcester tells us that the English were attempting to negotiate a peace and speaks of how the lords and clergy were using their submissions as a bargaining chip to retain their rights and properties. But that relied upon a common cultural and historic understanding. And also upon a common interest in perpetuating the power structures that existed prior to 1066. And you can imagine how the Normans felt about that. As far as William was concerned, he was just receiving the submission of a vassal. And their oaths and submissions that they were making were essentially just formalities and ways of showing fealty in a weird English way. It wasn't an actual gift exchange that would create mutual bonds of duties and honor. Their only other option here was death. So they were just being fancy about how they were begging for his mercy. Furthermore, the English understanding of their fealty oaths as creating a bond between men was foreign to William. The Normans didn't do it that way. So instead, he saw the oath as a complete submission to his rule and a handing over of everything into his care. The man, his titles, his lands, everything. This was a conquest. It's pretty clear William had no interest in old traditions of bookland or the way that the English handled titles and land ownership. The way that these people had arranged their society had no bearing or legitimacy in the eyes of the Normans. And so as far as William was concerned, they had no inherent right to whatever lands and titles that they claimed to hold. When William crossed the channel, he claimed England, all of it, which means when these Englishmen made their oaths, they became vassals, vassals, who, as far as the Normans were concerned, had recently rebelled against their rightful lord and, as such, had forfeited any and all claims to these lands and titles. And as for those mutual bonds of obligation and a king's duty of protection, whatever. The English might have a culture where their fealty could be revoked if a lord failed to meet his duties and treat his subjects well, but William wasn't English, so there's no take-backsies here. You submitted. It's done. And all of this meant that when these nobles made their oaths, many of them were shocked to find that their lands were forfeit. And despite the fact that they weren't being treated by their liege according to English law and custom, they were still expected to serve William. If they were lucky, they might be given the opportunity to buy back their lands from their new Norman master. But that was hardly the profitable collaboration that they were hoping for especially considering that the prices that William set for his lands were often eye-wateringly high. Even worse, the Peterborough Chronicle tells of how William would inspire bidding wars for those seized lands. Quote, The king sold his land on very hard terms, as hard as he could. Then came someone else 
and offered more than the other had given, and the king let it go to the man who offered him more. Then came a third and offered still more, and the king gave it to the hands of the man who offered him most of all, end quote. And if you think that this was simply cultural confusion, keep in mind that William was not at all ignorant of how oath culture worked. In fact, he had a long history of manipulating oaths to his own profit. The people of Maine knew this all too well, as did Harold Godwinson after his ill-fated journey to Normandy. This wasn't a bug. It was a feature. Norman feudalism had come to England. And once these English nobles disarmed, they became tenants to William. Even the legal language regarding land changed to reflect the new feudal ideology. Whereas English nobles used to hold land under their lord, now their lands were of a lord, indicating that the lands were independent of their governing lord and essentially rented to that lord in exchange for service. Which means that even the language used in documents and titles reflects the fact that the lords could have everything stripped away from them because none of it was theirs anyway. And as for the English elite who had tried to beat the rush and submitted to William early in his ravaging, well, they didn't fare well either. Even those who were high-ranked enough to be given lands back weren't given much. For example, according to one narrative account, Edgar the Atheling was given a large amount of land and were told that William, quote, treated him as long as he lived like one of his own sons, end quote. But when we look at his properties as they were actually recorded in the Doomsday Book, we see that Edgar the Atheling actually only had eight hides of land. Just eight. And remember, a hide was enough land for a single family subsistence farm. So to put it in perspective, there would have been churls with more land than the man who had just recently been proclaimed king. And this was someone who's described as being given a large endowment by William, and we're told he was treated as family in exchange for his submission. And of course, when we look at the records to see which lands were given to Edgar by William, we find that some of them were seized from other Englishmen. Naturally. Because William hadn't come to England to enrich a group of strange nobles. He, like most conquerors, was here to get rich himself. And many of the nobles would soon discover that, far from getting rich for switching sides, they would actually find themselves in deep trouble. Even the nobles who were lucky and didn't have their land seized would soon find that they have new, enormous taxes that they would have to pay to keep those lands. And if they didn't pay, well, let's just say that most of them tried to find a way to pay. Like the Roman occupation, the Norman occupation was forcing the former elite of this country into a situation of indebted servitude to their new masters. Now, further down the hierarchy were the officers. And when we look at the records regarding them, we see high-ranking courtly officials called Stallers and Shire Reeves, sheriffs, were also submitting to the Normans. And Orderic Vitalis tells us that they did so in hopes of retaining their offices and positions. And actually, their hopes were much better founded. Because immediately following their submission, 
the officers were, in fact, reinvested with their titles. Because of course they were. You can't tax people without tax collectors. The wealth extraction machine that the English nobles had been using on the English peasants needed to keep operating. It was just now being forwarded to a new address. So those officials were still necessary. At least in the short term. Until the Normans could get the lay of the land. And within a few years, those English officers, even the ones who were publicly staunch supporters of the Norman cause, began to find themselves out of work as they were gradually replaced by Norman candidates. There was only one group that appears to have gained from collaboration with the Norman invaders. The clergy. But there was a catch. While the church did acquire an increasing amount of stolen property, the English clergy running those institutions only enjoyed that enrichment for a handful of years before the Norman machine began to churn once again. And many English abbots, in all but one of the bishops, found themselves being gradually replaced by Normans, regardless of how quickly they submitted or how vocally supportive they were of their new masters. Because at the end of the day, the Norman occupation was an engine of wealth extraction. If some naive fancy lad wanted to collaborate, that would be fine and actually make the job easier. But it wasn't going to serve the English. It wouldn't even save them. Because extraction was the point. All that talk of Christ's peace, claims of secret promises, and even the Duke's repeated promises that he would be a gracious lord... All of that was just a means to an end. And I think it's important to understand that, especially because typically, if this situation is discussed, and it rarely is, it's often drawn out and it becomes a list of individual land seizures, purges, exiles, and the like. And I very easily could have presented it to you the same way. Because doing it in that fashion makes a certain chronological sense. You know, such and such happened to this noble at this point in time, and then this thing happened to this clergy member on another date. But by doing that, it gives the impression that these are individual isolated events that take place randomly over the course of years. But when you look at the situation as a whole, when you look at it as a pattern rather than just as a bunch of random actions... You see the system that is relentlessly grinding underneath it all. Because only when you combine that wealth extraction with the other element that is also often deleted from the story, namely the mass murder committed by the Normans and the agonizing level of inaction by the English leadership, only then can you get a full picture of what an immediate catastrophe this was for the powerless and how the powerful failed to grapple with how bad it was for them until it was too late. So that's why I'm jumping around in time right now, and including the collapsing communities found in the Doomsday Book, and putting them right next to the seizure of lands and titles that would take place over the next couple of years. Because I think that's the best way for you to see the full scope of what's actually happening here. And it's one huge, agonizing picture. However, I don't want you to get the impression that it all happened at once. It didn't. So as we discuss events in the episodes going forward, keep in mind that the relentless wealth extraction was continuing without pause. 
It was hitting the poor and defenseless immediately and acutely, both through the destruction of homes and communities, and also through the murder of loved ones, which would then leave families much more likely to die of starvation. But it was also hitting the wealthy, bit by bit, and some of them will begin to realize that these Normans weren't just a problem for the poor. They were a problem for all of them. But, returning to the first moment in this episode, when William's knights were roaming the land, murdering at will, and the English elites were rushing to his camp and making their oaths. This was a tricky period for the English, and there's some amount of disagreement as to whether or not William was king in this moment. And that's actually a big deal. Because land grants and handing out of titles was something that kings did. So the English who were coming over to the Normans and who were seeking to profit from collaboration, they really wanted William to be king because that way they could gain the lands and titles that they were certain they were owed. The trouble, though, was whether or not William was king was a complicated question. It was the Witan who selected kings, and the Witan hadn't convened and selected William. They selected Edgar. Now, granted, Many of the leading men who formed the Witan were now submitting to William, as did Edgar himself. But did that make William king? Well, not as far as William was concerned. Continental culture said that you weren't king until you were crowned, and no coronation had taken place. And so William took the position that he wasn't king. However, that position like a lot of William's positions, seems to have been one of political expediency rather than a deeply held belief. And I say that because when Poitiers wrote about the Battle of Hastings, he told us that part of what drove William forward and fueled his brutality on the battlefield was his feeling that the English, quote, deserved death for rebelling against him, their king, end quote. And we also know that as William gathered support for his invasion, he was promising lands and titles to his followers. So William clearly saw himself as a king, at least by the Battle of Hastings, and likely as far back as the assembly at the River Deeve. But denying that he was bound to the duties and responsibilities of that title served Norman interests in a whole variety of ways. First, it meant that he didn't have to accept Edgar the Atheling as a king because Edgar hadn't been crowned. He'd just been proclaimed. So as far as the Normans were concerned, Edgar was just some kid. And as such, there was no reason to depose him. He couldn't be deposed. He wasn't king. And second, remember all those oaths? And remember how William took the position that the submitting English nobility were making themselves vassals, largely rebel vassals at that? And as such, they didn't have book land. They were just tenants on William's lands, which they had just forfeited by rebelling. Well, only a king had the power to restore those lands. And William was insistent he wasn't king yet because he hadn't been crowned. Which meant that an argument could be made that all the lands of the submitting English nobles and all the wealth that those lands generated was his at least for the time being. So no need to rush to get crowned. Besides, getting crowned was actually a pretty dangerous thing to do. 
William had killed the King of England, who had been rightfully proclaimed by the Witan. He'd deposed the next King of England, who had also been rightfully proclaimed by the Witan. And William, on the other hand, had not been proclaimed king by the Witan. It seemed, in fact, that he had no need of a Witan. He'd taken England by force, and he was using that same threat of force to strip England of its ancient culture and political structure. It would no longer be ruled in the English manner. It was a Norman possession, and as such, it would be ruled in the continental feudal style. So what he was doing here was politically an incredibly aggressive move, and it was an affront to English power structures. And that's before you even get to what he and his men were up to in the English countryside. So he was playing with fire here. And the reason why getting crowned is dangerous is because ceremony and ritual are important elements of society. They carry extreme emotional weight. So if the Normans could read the room at all, they would have understood that any coronation risked creating a flashpoint for the rage of the newly conquered English. In fact, we're told that William confided in his closest companions that he was particularly concerned about the political situation in England. Namely, that all the kingdom hadn't submitted to him and that there were still English in open rebellion against him. And so he was not enthused about getting crowned. Now, keep in mind this would have been probably sometime in November. So he'd been in country for months. And King Harold had been dead for probably around a month. And while there's no record of a major organized resistance campaign coming out of the English leadership from this period, something was clearly still giving him the heebie-jeebies. Which suggests that there must have been some form of resistance movement in England. And given how many nobles' names are involved in the supplications to William... This resistance may well have been coming from the commoners and the lower-ranked members of English society, and it seems that it was potent enough to cause William quite a bit of consternation. Now, Poitiers adds that William also wanted his wife Matilda to be crowned alongside him, and that the delay was necessary since, you know, she was still in Normandy. He literally says that William wanted to delay because he, quote, cherished the sanctity of his marriage vows, end quote. And while it is possible that William's vows were very different from mine, I suspect the reality is that cross-channel travel times and matrimonial harmony through conquest were the least of William's concerns and were largely included by Poitiers to spin the situation. Because the reality was that only southeastern England was under William's control. And the records also indicate that Edwin and Morcar had returned north to Mercia and Northumbria. And those were two territories with vast numbers of living peasants and warriors. Which meant there were a lot of potential troops up there who were largely untouched by the battles and conscriptions that had recently exhausted the south. Having a fancy coronation ceremony is great, but not if an enormous army from the north and the Midlands decides to attend and offer their boot up the new king's ass. So William's reluctance is totally understandable, but the matter of titles and land grants was still hanging in the air. And remember, many of the Norman and French fighters had joined William in this adventure 
only because he promised them that once he won the kingdom, they would be given lands, titles, and wealth. And against all odds, Project Seahorse did work. So now the knights were ready to get paid. And knights weren't exactly known for being calm, understanding, and level-headed. These were violent, ignorant, heavily armed rich kids who were obsessed with wealth and their own fragile sense of honor. So every moment that William delayed, he was withholding the wages that they felt they were owed. And it was rapidly becoming less about money and more about honor. That's not good. You also had the matter of the English collaborators. The clergy expected to be rewarded for delivering God's support. The nobility expected to be rewarded for standing down their territories without putting up a fight. And both expected to have their properties returned to them. And so Orderic Vitalis tells us that the bishops and the collaborating nobles began, quote, begging him to accept the crown according to English custom, end quote. And the Peterborough Chronicle gives us a glimpse into what kind of pressure the English were putting on William to take the crown. Because we're told that the English only paid taxes to William after he was crowned. Now, the Waltham Chronicle explains that this was because they were, quote, accustomed to obey a king and wished to have a king as their lord, end quote. But it's much more likely that the consorting English had the same motivation that the Normans did. They, quote, wished their gains and honors to be increased by his elevation, end quote. And it appears that they were so eager to gain their rewards that they were withholding taxes from William until he took the crown in hopes that he would, in turn, provide them with some of that wealth for their support. Which you might be surprised to hear, because it implies that these nobles had quite a few vertebrae, And that's shocking considering that this group of people had demonstrated themselves to be pretty spineless about five minutes ago. Though we also know the thing that the English nobility hadn't yet learned, that William wasn't planning on sharing his wealth with the English elite. Sure, they might get their lands back, but only if they won the bidding war and paid the price set by him. They were making the classic mistake of counting their money while still sitting at the table. But because they didn't realize that, they were placing increasing pressure upon him to take the crown. And so was William's own deadly companions. But that threat of rebellion still worried the Duke. And it seems that the thing that finally convinced him was that if he was crowned and he reigned as king, quote, any rebels would be less ready to challenge him, end quote. And they would be, quote, more easily put down, end quote. Essentially, if he was king, he'd have more military resources. So finally, William relented. He would accept the crown. Matrimonial vows be damned. Matilda could be crowned later, and if he had to sleep on the couch, so be it. And in a deliberate effort to tie William to the House of Wessex, it was decided that William would be crowned in London at King Edward's new church, Westminster Abbey. And also, in a deliberate effort to tie William to Jesus, it was decided that he would be crowned on Christmas Day. But these were also Normans, so the interest in being like Jesus pretty much stops there. And in preparation for this happy occasion, William dispatched an advanced force of knights to enter and occupy London. Now, remember, 
Our records tell us that only weeks earlier, London had been double-stuffed with fighters summoned to battle William. It was also home to God knows how many refugees who'd managed to flee William's savage campaign in Hastings, Dover, Canterbury, along the Pilgrim's Road, Southwark, and many of the other communities surrounding London on both sides of the Thames. So London would have been full of people who had just lost everything at the hands of this man and his knights, many of whom were also mourning their loved ones. From warriors to grandparents to toddlers. And alongside them were many men who'd been called to fight this guy and his ravaging army. So you can imagine London was just filled to the brim with the Christmas spirit. But you don't need to take my word for it. Poitiers tells us that William was particularly concerned about the general mood in London. And so he instructed his knights to build a fortress in the city, quote, as a defense against the inconstancy of the numerous and hostile inhabitants, end quote. The people were pissed. And construction, it appears, was only one part of the knights' duties. Because Jumiège adds that the knights also spread out into the city in search for potential dissidents. So we have a bunch of violent, illiterate men anxiously interacting with people that they saw as lesser, dangerous, and foreign, and they couldn't even speak the same language. And predictably, they insisted they, quote, found many rebels determined to offer every possible resistance, end quote. Now, how the knights determine the guilt of their victims isn't explained. I mean, these are the kind of guys who would be stumped by the cat in the hat, and I doubt many of them could speak Old English. But despite the utter lack of training and education, they have been set loose on the people of London with the authority to inflict violence upon anyone who they perceived as a threat. And it seems that they wielded that authority with glee. And quote, Fighting followed immediately, and thus London was plunged into mourning for the loss of her sons and citizens, end quote. So the people of London, abandoned by their leaders, were now being preyed upon by men who were looking for any reason to attack the local population. How do you say stop resisting in old French? And you might be wondering what Duke William was up to while his knights were in London acting as a not-all-that-secret police. Well, he remained in the outskirts, waiting for the deed to be completed. And Poitiers tells us that, quote, so free was he from any opposition that he might, if he had wished, have occupied his leisure in hunting and hawking, end quote. So he didn't go hawking and hunting, but he could have, because he wasn't facing an organized resistance from the English. Now, ultimately, we don't know what he was doing, but I will remind you we have multiple records indicating that William kept his army in the field, ravaging the countryside. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was occupying his time with that, in lieu of the hawking that Poitiers said he could have done, but apparently didn't feel like it. But eventually, the fort in London was completed, and the knights felt like they had roughed up and killed enough locals to cow the public. So it was time to send for the duke. You can only imagine what the mood in London must have been like by the time that William finally arrived with the remainder of his army. William may have been claiming that he was a continuation of King Edward, but his behavior was telling a very different story, and he knew he was making enemies. 
That was why he was so nervous about the coronation. So while we don't have a description of his arrival in London, I imagine he was heavily guarded and he was eager to get inside his fortress as quickly as possible. And then Christmas Day arrived. Don't imagine anything like the coronation procession of Elizabeth II. The sparse description provided by Poitiers and the focus on security and public suppression suggest that this wasn't a celebratory event as William approached Westminster Abbey. Now, the Abbey, at this point in history, could only hold a few hundred people. So only those selected by Duke William and his advisors would have been allowed inside the building. As for the atmosphere outside? Well, there's nothing in the records that indicates anything resembling the public reaction to a coronation that we've seen in later years. There were no throngs of people in goofy hats flooding the streets in hopes of catching a glimpse of the new monarch. Instead, it appears that virtually all of the residents of London remained home. And for good reason. Because the Abbey was surrounded by knights. Likely the same knights who, only days earlier, had been killing anyone who looked at them funny. Which raises the question... Why do a coronation at all if the Normans were so nervous about it? Why not just accept the English position that a king was made the moment that a council of the most powerful figures in England proclaimed him king? Well, I suspect there were two reasons. First, there was the matter of politics. Whether or not there was a big ceremony, he would still need to be anointed and stuff. A coronation was a ritual. It still technically is though we tend to forget those elements. And a religious ceremony of this caliber absolutely requires an archbishop. But William had made things kind of weird with the English archbishops. If you think back, part of his justification for invasion was that Harold was crowned by Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury. And Stigand hadn't properly received his pallium, meaning the coronation ceremony was illegitimate. And as such, Harold was not king, he was a usurper. It was a silly and likely fabricated claim, especially considering that the English sources were very clear that Harold was actually crowned by Archbishop Eldred of York, who had received his pallium. But the claim was made, and now that the Normans found themselves on the other side of this lie, that meant they were in a pickle because they needed to have William properly crowned. Otherwise, people might start pointing out that at least Harold had been crowned, and as such, maybe it was William who was the usurper. So to fix that, the crowning had to happen, which meant they needed an archbishop, but they also couldn't exactly turn to the guy they just made such a fuss about. So that left Archbishop Eldred as the only English archbishop who could actually do the deed. But thanks to the way the Normans went about this, it also meant that Eldred had power over this situation. And according to version D of the Chronicle, he used it. Eldred declared that he would only crown William if he swore on the Bible that he would rule as the best kings of England had done before him, provided that the English remained loyal. John of Worcester adds that Eldred insisted that William swear to rule all the people justly. So basically, we're told that Eldred was forcing the coronation as a way to force William to publicly promise God that he would chill the f*** 
out and stop murdering everyone. And we're told that William accepted those terms. Now, one thing that we've seen from William repeatedly is that he was actually very good at handling ecclesiastical authorities in a way that made them feel respected. But as we will also see, he knew how to find the qualifiers on his promises. And the qualifier on this promise to Eldred was that he would be a good king so long as the people remained loyal. But loyalty isn't exactly a well-defined term. And besides, what is a good king anyway? So, I suspect that's reason number one for the public coronation. Due to the lie about Stigand and the claim that Harold wasn't properly crowned, William basically had no choice but to accept Archbishop Eldred's demands. The second reason I think William and the Normans went forward with the coronation is essentially cultural antagonism. The English had selected their kings, and the moment of rule had come at the moment when the Witan made its decision. And William was doing away with that. He had taken the kingdom by force. His elevation wasn't the result of a vote. And by only allowing his rule to begin with his crowning, he was also doing away with the English concepts of rule and replacing them with his own Norman ways. And I think Poitiers is particularly instructive here because the subtext all throughout his account is one of barbarism, specifically English barbarism. This was a backward, stupid kingdom that was religiously and ethnically inferior to the Normans. And as such, they were complicit in all the violence and horrors that were currently befalling them. William and the Normans were saving these barbaric English. And even when Poitiers writes about the English devotion to their native rulers and praises their sincerity, he condemns them for stupidly supporting the wrong leaders. Basically, he's telling them, please continue being patriotic, but just do so for your new Norman masters. And despite your backwards ways and treasonous behavior and supporting that usurper who doesn't even merit mention, we Normans are here to rescue you from your idiot past and bring England into an enlightened future of being ruled by an illiterate class of Norman horse bros. You're welcome. And I think that's likely why we're told the coronation was particularly extravagant, as that would have also had the effect of displaying the power of the Normans while diminishing the memory of Harold and his predecessors. Even William's crown carried a message. The Carmen tells us that it was specifically commissioned from a continental craftsman, and the descriptions of it bring to mind the crown of Emperor Otto the Great of the Holy Roman Empire. This wasn't the crown of an English king. This was the crown of a continental emperor. And the Carmen describes the coronation as the point when William, quote, discarded the title of duke to be made a king, end quote. But looking at the choices made for this ceremony, I think William had a much larger PR ambition. The crown, the opulence, the staging, all of it tells us this coronation wasn't just a ritual to grant William authority or an attempt by Archbishop Eldred to get the Normans to stop committing mass murder. No, this was a ritual to mark the break from the past and to start a new era. A year zero. Not just for William, but for England. 
Finally, the English were being brought into the civilized world, a holy world of the Normans and of feudal authority. And so inside the abbey, everything was arranged to display the wealth and power of the new Norman aristocrats that were taking possession of the kingdom, their kingdom. The ceremony was conducted by Archbishop Eldred of York, who was assisted by the Norman Bishop Geoffrey of Coutances. William was made to swear an oath upon the Bible to rule justly, according to the best customs and practices of his predecessors. He had to swear to maintain the law and forbid the violent seizure of property and any unjust judgments, which was an easy oath to make for the sort of man who believes that, as king, everything he does is just, by definition. Next, he was bestowed a crown, a ring, and he was anointed with consecrated oil. After the anointing, Archbishop Eldred turned to the congregation inside the abbey and, speaking in Old English, asked them if it was their desire to see William as their king. The English speakers in the crowd affirmed, though it seems they did so solemnly. Next, Bishop Joffrey, speaking in Old French, asked the same question of the assembled French and Norman aristocrats. And this time, we're told there was a great shout of joy from the assembly. Meanwhile, outside the abbey, a large force of mounted, heavily armed knights waited. Despite the fact that it was Christmas Day, the city was probably eerily quiet. It was unlikely that any Londoners had much to celebrate this year. Even the Norman accounts speak of how the city was thrown into a deep sense of mourning after the behavior of this duke and his knights. But eventually, the coronation reached its end, and cries of celebration echoed from within the abbey. Taking it as their cue, the assembled knights unsheathed their swords, lit their torches, and began to burn and pillage the city. Welcome to the Era of the Normans.